and welcome everybody to another um bangers and classics uh, podcast uh, that, and that's with me james ruppert and him david malloy so let's find out what david's been up to if he's there are you there david i'm still i'm here i've got company as well we have a third member in the podcast this week uh he is alfie he is a border collie he belongs to a neighbor and i'm looking after him while said neighbor is off at a wedding today uh, i think alfie might make more sense than i make so i might just turn over the microphone to him i don't know what you think of that james a new podcast partner for uh, for woof, woof. Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, yeah, I'd be, um, I'd be quite happy with that. Yeah, it's easier to feed as well, you know. He's also housebroken. I'm not. Oh, right. <laughs> See, I saw yet another MX5, another lowered one with uh, a hard top. It's not the same one I've seen in the last couple of weeks. This one's different, and it was by the side of the road. It looks as if it had broken down. I wasn't sure if maybe the chap had just pulled over, but I thought, oh, it could be a breakdown there. I thought. Dear God, they really are trying to emulate Lotus, aren't they? And again, of course, that's the Lotus of old, not the Lotus of the M100 either, because they never break down, of course. Well, I had five, and they never left me stranded once. So, but I did, see, I did see a Lotus as well. I saw the back end of a late model XL uh, across from a supermarket in Prestwick. Um, I've seen it there before. It's a nice Lotus racing green one. I suspect it belongs to the people who own the house, and they keep it in a garage around the back. They were sitting there and looking very clean and tidy it was too. So, you know, I saw a car that wanted it so badly to be a Lotus, but, but wasn't, and I saw the genuine thing. So there you go. What, what have you seen, James? Um, I've seen quite a lot of stuff, actually, David. Um, uh, a particular spot for you um, was actually a 70s Toyota Land Cruiser towing a boat. All right. Um, and, yeah, it was painted uh, olive green, so there was like a military vibe going on with it. Uh, but it was a, you know, it was a proper boat with a sail and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the sail wasn't raised, of course, um, but it was, you know, it was, it was a, it was sort of a wooden boat. It wasn't, um, you know, a fiberglass job. So it was a, you know, a proper old school uh, pairing there. They could have raised the sail, switched <laughs> off the engine in the Land Cruiser, and, <laughs> and just powered along, yeah, and, and gone the other way, couldn't they? Yeah, that, yeah, that exactly. Way. And that that is true green power. Well, I, I, actually, there is actually some Giles cartoons, which I must send you, which I think do exactly the same thing. The <laughs> Giles cartoons had fabulous drawings of uh, vehicles, a bit like the Tintin books, actually, uh, when they when they drew when old Giles drew cars, they were actually pretty good because he used to drive around the country uh, in a Land Rover. I don't know if you know that. I, I don't know how we got here, but um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, he used to spend sort of weeks at a time. Uh, sketching real people and real things so that's why his cartoons were so good uh, I would say to anybody that actually that was part of my youth if you actually want to know what was going on in a particular year buy uh, a Giles annual from that year and you will know precisely all the big events because all the cartoons were not just funny not just well drawn but they will also you know tell you you know give you a very good background uh, into what was going on at the time you might disagree with that I don't know no 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 I'm healthy respect for cartoonists Though I have to say, it didn't apply to everybody that I knew. I wasn't I wasn't the only petrol head in my year at school. There were yeah. some other guys. And one of them, um, his father moved down to, I think it was Kenilworth. And a couple of the other lads went down one summer, or well, I think it was one autumn, uh, would be, of course. And they went to the motor show together at the NEC. Yeah. And they found themselves near somewhere. I, I don't know if it was a book by Nibs or something to do with Nibs, the, the cartoonist. And they start slagging off Nibs, saying he's probably the crepe old man, you know, wears a CD Mac, etc. blah, blah, blah. And the chap appears out of nowhere and says, good afternoon, lads, I'm Nibs. <laughs> <laughs> he heard every word they'd said, of course. They didn't know yeah. what to do. 
Yeah, it served him jolly well, right? Um, Absolutely. Last week we talked about Princess Diana's Ford Escort, and I should have mentioned the story back then. Um, now, I'm not going to break any confidences by saying this because I never met the lady in question. I never saw the case file. I had no knowledge, as it turned out, of the case. But way back in 1996, Princess Diana's mother um, found herself in a little bit of hot water over a motoring charge, um, and her case was to proceed at Auburn Sheriff Court. And she instructed the firm I worked for to represent her in the proceedings. And my boss said to me, and I don't think he was joking, ah, David, you're just a very man, you can deal with this case. And I had very thought, oh, God, no, <laughs> absolutely not. You know, a press scrum outside, now I go and face that. I was quite young, I, well, youngish. I just not into that sort of thing. So fortunately, by the time things got to the court stage, I'd actually moved firms and moved on. But he did he did actually represent her in the case. But it so nearly could have been me. If I hadn't got out of there, it uh, probably would have been me. Never mind, David. I mean, you know, that was your your one um, sort of uh, pitch at uh, fame and fortune. And uh, uh, no, well, there wasn't. There, there, no, there wasn't. There, there wasn't. There was another occasion I had to leave the court via the bin shelter to dodge the press. I get given a hospital pass of a case. Um, I can't tell you, tell you the details of it, but basically, uh, one of my colleagues gave me this. I thought we shouldn't be going to court with it. I really didn't think it was a good idea at all. We weren't going to win it. Um, we would have won it on the facts, I thought, on merit, but the type of case it was, you weren't going to find a sheriff or a judge that would find in that in our favour. And uh, yeah, I was proven right. I thought, oh God, if I go out now, I'm going to get mobbed by the press here because they're waiting. I mean, I can see them at the front of the court, you know, the cameras, etc. I saw this for a game of soldiers. Somebody sneaked out via the bins. <laughs> <laughs> Glasgow Sheriff Court that way. Um, I think that was one of the things that made me question whether or not I wanted to still be a lawyer, I have to say. <laughs> but yeah, that, that did happen. But anyway, back to the car spots. Well, the only other thing, David, um, is, um, you know, you and I talk about um, blood, bloodless coups and sometimes bloody coups. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the other day, I would assume that um, certainly... Um, towards uh, Norwich, there was one going on because it was military Land Rover after military Land Rover after military Jeep. There was there was a whole cavalcade of them. I sort of lost count after a while, uh, but it was fairly spectacular. And uh, I think if they wanted to regime change, uh, they probably could have done it. Um, uh, even though I didn't see any ordnance on board, um, they were certainly you know it was it, it was nice to see them all um, ready and waiting. And then the next day. I saw um, it was it was basically Land Rovers and, and Discoveries um, all um, uh, muddied up. Uh, they'd all obviously been off off roading, so they were all bobtailed ones, so that they could get out of uh, uh, difficult situations. And there was about half a dozen of them, but they were all. I don't think it was spray on mud. I think it was proper mud, and uh, it was quite nice to see that as well. So I've seen an awful lot of Land Rovers, and then very finally. Um, which I sent you a picture of, David, because uh, I know you like boats. I sent you a picture of uh, a Rolls-Royce, mm. um, which was um, uh, in spectacular. Now, I, I meant to look this up, and I've, I, I just haven't had the time. Um, it's quite a simple thing to look up. Um, but I think it was uh, a Mulliner Park walled uh, body on it, um, mm. which is the forehead lights at, at the front. But it was an absolutely massive, massive Rolls-Royce and, and in, in perfect condition. And the only mm. thing I would have marked it down for is uh, the wire wheels. But as I said to you, I think that's something for the butler to clean each night when you drove home. But it really was uh, a lovely looking thing because you just do not see them. 
Mm. Well, I have to say, I, I liked the wheels. Um, mm. I did like them. All you want need from that, well, if you got one of those, all you need to add is French Riviera and you want Audrey Hepburn. Oh, yes, pretty much. And of course. I mean, it's the kind of car that an Audrey Hepburn would be seen in, let's be honest. Very classy, very elegant. And, yeah, I could just see you wafting around the, the French Riviera, Mr. Mr. Muppet, with your, with your guitars in the back. Well, could do. Or either that or Joanne from the Renault 25 ad. I, you know, I do. I, I do uh, hold a light for her at, uh, you know, that yeah. she might, uh, you know, want to go for a spin at some point, but never mind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we shall move on from that before we get you into any more hot water, my boy. <laughs> anyway, we'll t- we shall take a break. Are you tired, exhausted, or having trouble with your big end? Well, if so, you've come to the right place. Bangers and Classics, the podcast that refreshes parts that you didn't even know existed. Uh, welcome back after that short break. Uh, we're now going to announce a new competition. Now, I'm sure you've all been glued to your seats watching uh, Euro 2020 or 2021, right? except for viewers in Scotland who've been hiding behind the sofa as usual, I'm sorry to say. Um, but along that, idea, along that theme, we'll come up with an idea in which 16 nations will each enter a car, be a knockout competition, and uh, the nations are going to be, uh, had to work on the basis that we could only produce uh, entries from car producing nations. So here they are. We have Austria, the Czech Republic, England. Will they get a traditionally easy draw or will they have a tough one for a change? <laughs> uh, France, Germany, uh, Holland, Italy, the Azuli, of course, Northern Ireland, Poland, Romania, Russia, Scotland. Uh, will, they, will they actually make it past the first round? Well, we'll have to wait and see. Spain, Sweden, Switzerland and Wales. And the idea will be that uh, it'll be a knockout contest. Uh, first first round, the first week, will be effectively eight matches between two countries. And this week will be four, two, and then one, and they'll get an overall champion. Um, please don't vote on nationalistic grounds. Vote on the basis of the cards. Um, it's just a bit of fun, not to be taken too seriously. And I think James and I will come up with a prize for it. Um, I'm sure we will. We'll give, we'll give you more details when it launches on Twitter, or we'll probably run through those next week, and we'll launch it just after that. Um, so what do you think, James? Think that's a... Well, I think it's all terribly exciting, uh, but obviously, dear listeners, uh, this is something that uh, David does, because David is, is, is very, very good at coming up with uh, ideas for competitions, and uh, you know he does like a knockout cup, so uh, you know all the, all the credit goes to him. And I just sit on the sidelines and make sarcastic remarks, really. And I don't really contribute very much to it uh, at all. But, uh, yeah, just make sure you pick one of David's books when uh, uh, when it comes to the prize. So It, 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 it might not be. I'm, I might have something yeah. entirely different like that. Oh, really? Oh, oh yeah. okay. Possibly, possibly, possibly. Yes, that's it. Well, as long as you're in charge of taking penalties, James will be fine. <laughs> I, I, was to, very good, I, I was very good. I was, I was certainly very good at giving away penalties. I'll tell you that. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I've, uh, I wasn't much of a footballer or anything really. Um, I think I got—I once got a game of substitute spectator or something like that. I don't know. Um, my uncle was a very good player, as I mentioned before, but I was rubbish. Yeah. More of a rugby player. But anyway, um, that's coming soon. But in the meantime, what are we going to turn to? Bang our classic. And after being hit over the head with a picture frame by your last week, James, mm. I thought, let's go with the Triumph Dolomite for this week's Bang our classic. And since you owned a couple, I think right. you should yeah. be the man to make the case for it being a classic. Yeah, it's a difficult one, that, because uh, <clears throat> uh, the, um, some I had sort of broke down in fairly spectacular fashion. And 
uh, oddly enough, um, mm-hmm. my dad um, had one that I um, mm-hmm. uh, eventually ended up using, and it was uh, an 1850. And uh, he was in Scotland, strangely enough, David. He was in <laughs> your, your neck of the woods. And uh, the gearbox uh, started to uh, spout oil. And I have still got hydraulic fluid um, from that uh, fateful day um, when he, he, he bought basically an entire garage's supply of it so he could get home because all he, all he was doing was topping it up. And he thought, well, I'm not going to break down. It's going to take forever to get home. And he bought, and yeah, and it was, um, it may still have the garage markings on it, actually, uh, but, I, but I've still got a few bottles of it left. And so that's the only way that he could make it home in that Triumph Dolomite. Mm. And actually, many years later, um, I had exactly the same thing happen. Where, uh, uh, and I, I've got a feeling, uh, I presume it was uh, a get drag box. I haven't researched it, obviously. Um, but I don't know. They must be terrible automatic gearboxes. Yeah, automatic gearboxes, people. How, how terrible is that? Mm. But it suited the car fairly well, really. Uh, in many ways, a Dolomite um it was uh, designed by the same person who did the three series and you can either you can either think well yeah it you know it does look okay or it doesn't but uh i think it was quite a smart upright um sort of uh, car uh fairly narrow um but it had a nice bit of wood inside um it was quite a comfortable drive and uh rear rear wheel drive i know you're going to go on go on about the toledo version where it was uh, front wheel drive and uh, yeah it was a very confused marketing policy as we all know, British Laden were, you know, pretty much mad at the time and didn't really know what what they were doing. Uh, but it was a, it was a pretty nice car to drive. Um, the ones I had didn't rust very much. Um, they were sort of okay, really, which was good. And uh, yeah, apart from that, I just think think they're okay. I mean, everybody goes on about the uh, Sprint version, um, although you could have problems overheating problems with that uh, engine. Mm. Uh, it was a pretty good car. Um, my old colleague uh, Roger Bell used to drive that in the British Touring Car mm. Championship. Actually, Tony, yeah. Tony joined as well, didn't he? I yeah, that's in fact, right. Tony joined definitely drove for mm. Dolomite. Yeah, he did. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and they drove it with some success. So yeah, it could be oh, wow. hustled around, um, yeah. you know, a track very usefully. But I found actually an 1850 or even a 1500, which I had um, HL, was uh, a pretty nice car. Actually, yeah. so it, it, it was quite a comfortable car. It was a sort of a bijou little saloon. Um, from the 70s really and uh, i suppose that's me i'm a bijou saloon from the 70s <laughs> so it it suits me very well but uh uh to me it's uh it's a classic but uh, i'm sure you'll disagree with that at some point well i'll come to that but going back to the engine it also was used in formula three back in the day mm. um you remember the unipart team um with the union jack livery cars i think tiffany dell might have driven that at one stage mm. and possibly even like <clears throat> nigel mansell um, I may be wrong about Mansell, <clears throat> but I'm pretty sure Tiffany Dell drove the Dolomite Sprint-powered uh, uh, F3 car. I don't think it was too successful, unfortunately, uh, up against, you know, the. I think it was the, mainly the Toyota, probably the Toyota Nova Motor, I think they were up against at that time in F3. Issues I have with the Dolomite are, especially on doing what they did, um, rehashing something and making it a complete, you know, dog's breakfast of it. Dolomite really started out life as a front-wheel drive car, the 1300-1500-1965. And it looked fine then with its Michelotti pen lines, mm-hmm. uh, all-round independent suspension, front disc brakes, etc. It was quite a nice little car. But the engine mounting was longitudinal, not transverse. It wasn't terribly space-efficient. Then Triumph went along and waited a few years, and they brought out the Toledo. Um, but 
this is where it all goes a bit strange, that they decided to throw away front-wheel drive, which I think was a mistake, re-engineered the car to be rear-wheel drive, made some various ah, fairly minor changes apart from engineering, obviously, and they produced that. And then they made, they made a, a bigger engine version, which became the Dolomite. But by the time the Dolomite appeared, the car was seven years old, and it went on for a further eight. Um, against the, light, you know, the, the opposition from abroad, particularly the BMWs, it just wasn't up to the task. The sprints, you know, back in the day in the, the Touring Car Championship were great. Thoroughly supported them. I remember, I think, Jerry Marshall raced one as well at one point. Anyone who liked motor racing in the 70s would have liked Jerry Marshall for all sorts of reasons, not just the fact that he was a terrific driver, but also he was a terrific personality. He drove a dolly sprint. And as you say, Roger Bell, Tony John, so some great drivers. But going back to the road car, I just thought it looks staid. It looks old. It's not evolving. It's really rooted in a previous decade, and that was the issue for me with it. It had you know, a certain amount of class, it had a certain amount of character to it. Of course it did. It wasn't a complete flop, but I just don't feel that it was a great car. I think you know by the time they brought out the Dolomite, so much time had passed that you know its time really had come and gone You know before ever had a chance. So I'm going to say, unfortunately, I can't say it's a classic. I'm not going to label it with, a, with the banger tag either because I don't feel that's fair. But I just don't see it as being a, a you know a copper bottom classic. Um, so there we go. You want to change my mind on that? It's pointless, isn't it, David? You know, I mean, you, you, know, the, you can hit me with another picture frame. I, I could hmm. do, couldn't I? Really? But uh, hmm. no, no. You're, enti- <laughs> you're entitled to your own opinion. I mean, however wrong-headed it is, David. Um, not very. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's. The Dolomite, is just, it's just never done it for me, I'm afraid, guys. There were better cars available from other manufacturers, and that's just the reality of it. It could have been uh, a great car if it had been produced several years before, but the, you know, um, for various reasons, it didn't come out until the 70s, and by then, I think other cars had surpassed it, and it was really living in the past. Anyway, um, I suspect I'll be in a minority there, which I'm not too fussed about. That's part of the fun. Uh, and anyway, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Bangers and Classics, home of the Banger Vision Car Contest and the European Classic Nations Cup. So while we are recording this, yeah. practice or first practice for this year's British Grand Prix is taking place. Right. Uh, it's a different format this weekend. We're not going to get into that because you know we'll maybe talk about it after it's been and gone. But what I'd like to talk about is the things that were great about Formula One and uh, that we've lost, and perhaps some of the things about Formula One that weren't so good that we've now got. And uh, if I can kick us off, the first thing I'd say that I miss about Formula One in the old days was the ease of spectator access to the paddock. After the race, you could get in, you could be among the mechanics and the drivers. Obviously, you had to behave with respect, and certainly, in my experience, people did. You behaved yourself appropriately, you didn't make a nuisance of yourself. You know, It was a privilege, and you treated it as such. But you were able to get in and soak up the atmosphere. And that was a big part of it for me. Just you felt part, you know, you felt part of the event. The other thing I suppose is noise. This is a common complaint of fans nowadays. The modern cars they don't really make a very great noise. That they're not the most sonorous of devices. If you go back to the early 70s, you had the Matra V12, you had the Ferrari V12, you had the Alpha Flat 12 came along, and of course you had the Cosworth DFE, and I nearly forgot there, you had the BRM V12 as well all of which made a terrific racket. You would drink in the sound and it would enhance the experience. It would add to the atmosphere of the event. If you're walking um, across to the stands or whatever before the race started, the cars were going out warm-up laps, 
just the sound of it, you know, you would you would feel a, a real sense of anticipation before the race started. Now, not so much. So that's a couple of things I think we miss. What about you, James? Well, I mean, you're right on all those points, uh, David. Um, the old days were better. Um, and I'll be very controversial then here. I actually miss the fag packet um, liveries <laughs> myself. I really do. Absolutely think they would. They just looked brilliant. Um, uh, all of the liveries. I mean, even things like Revlon, which you couldn't smoke, um, uh, which were all great. And I will make a point, actually, about this, is that I was a very big fan of uh, Formula One back, back in the day and all that sort of stuff. I was surrounded by cigarettes when I was younger. You know, I used to be in smoke-filled rooms. You know, all my relatives smoked. I mean, at Christmas time, you couldn't see one end of the room from the other because uh, everyone was smoking. And But, you know, I was surrounded by, um, you know, all this advertising and promote. And yet I've never smoked. So <laughs> I don't know what went wrong there. I don't know whether I had an aversion therapy, but um, I see nothing wrong with that. I mean, if somebody wants to put whatever they want on a, on a racing car, I don't care. Um, I just want to see them go fast around the track. But I also want to see a cool livery. And you won't see anything better than uh, a JSP, will you, um, logo, <laughs> or even um, uh, the Gold Leaf Team Lotus uh, uh, cars, which I thought looked really, really good as well. Um, and all the Marlborough ones. I know I'm going down the wrong route here, uh, which uh, won't help, help us to uh, monetize this podcast. So it's all, it's all about smoking uh, uh, death sticks. Um, but no, uh, that's the, I suppose, in a way that was um, symbolic of the time. I think there was a few um, uh, uh, beer logos as well. Skull, mm-hmm. um, sponsor them as well. Um, and uh, the, the London Rubber Company, I, I think, um, yep. uh, invested in Surtees. They did. They, oh, uh, that was controversial. Well. It was, wasn't it, mm. at, at the time? But um, not as controversial as <laughs> Penthouse. No, that's right. Remember the Penthouse was on it? I yeah. do, very much um, so. And Absolutely. also, sorry to interrupt, James, but I, yeah. I, I'll forget if I don't say, yeah. ABBA. Hmm? ABBA. Um, it's, I'm, here we go. Where's the klaxon? It's, it's in the book of mine. It's the ultimate <laughs> unofficial F1 quiz book. But it tells a story of this. Uh, a Swedish driver who did some work in the studio, I think he actually appeared in the albums with ABBA, became an F1 driver, a guy called Tommy Borgud. And for a couple of races in 19, I think it was 82, it was 81 or 82 anyway, from memory, I haven't bothered checking this up again, he drove for the ATS team. And on the side pods of his car was ABBA. They didn't pay for it, but they allowed him to use it to try and drum up some sponsorship. Um, so you had that on. I mean, I just couldn't see. You can't see. You couldn't see rock bands nowadays or pop bands having the logo on a Formula One car. But back forty years ago, we did. That was cool. It was very very cool indeed. In fact, I did see the other day. I saw um, a picture of um, a current Formula One car. It was next to a, um, a late nineties. I think it may have be, even been an early two thousands. That's how little I know about um, uh, uh, Formula One cars of recent years. But it was just the sheer size of the cars. Now they're just like longer than a London bus, aren't they? They're just mm. absolutely huge things. Um, and again, that's something that we that we seem to miss. And also. Cars, I know they do end up looking pretty similar, um, but uh, again, I think you, there were far more distinctive shapes. There were mm. more, there was there was a there was a lot more engineering going on where people say, "Oh, we'll try that this week," um, rather than everything looking exactly the same mm. you know, in the same corporate logo, styly in effect. 
We had the shovel-nosed Ferrari they called the snowplow. Mm. I think it was the B3 from memory, but I could be wrong. Um, there was the Tibble six-wheeler car. Yep. Uh, Williams also tested one. So did March and also Ferrari. Uh, Carlos Reutemann, to whom we paid tribute last week, did quite mm. a bit of testing in the Ferrari six-wheeler. Um, there were all different, as you say, shapes and shapes of cars. Mm. That's what made it great. The, the variation in liveries now, I'm like you, James, I've never smoked them. I, I don't like it as a habit. I have to mm. say I'm dead against it, really. But um, the variation of liveries was great, yeah. um, I have to say. And you know, you've got cars that look genuinely interesting. Mm. And the livery was one of the things that made them distinctive, but also the shape. Nowadays, they tend to look very similar. And it's a little bit unfortunate. You know, if you, t- if you stripped a car of its livery now, um, you might be hard-pressed to tell a Williams from, say, um, an Alfa Tori. I mean, obviously, real Formula One nuts, yeah, could tell the difference straight away. But the average viewer probably couldn't. It'd be quite difficult for them to do so. But you go back to, the say, the early 80s even, and you took the logos off, say, on a Sella and off a Renault, you'd know which was switched straight away. There'd be no yeah. bother at all to spot. Absolutely. Yeah, and I the- mean, it, it, it is things like the air boxes, isn't it? The air boxes are different. Mm. And as you say, the front air dams were mm. different. Um, yeah, because people were doing different things and mm. they were allowed to do different things. Yeah. And, uh, obviously, that's that's what we're missing. In fact, I did speak to a young um, uh, Formula One fan the other day, who actually my nephew, um, and I bored into tears um, about the Pro Car series in that, uh, mm. which, was, which was a great series which ran for uh, a couple of seasons, didn't it? Where they were all put in identical uh, M1 supercars and uh, left to their own devices. Yeah. And they certainly, yeah, they yeah. certainly ran it in '79. Uh, do, do you know who won that championship? Um, I thought it was whoever won the Formula One. Did no. uh, did nope. a Clay did did Clay run it? No, 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 no. That's a shame. No, it wasn't Clay. Uh, I was the other day. Clay, what Clay won Williams' first Grand Prix though? It was Nicky Lauda. Oh, it was. Was it? Yeah, Nicky won it. He, he wasn't even bothered about racing Formula One that year. His performances were not great by and large. Yeah. And he walked away before the end of the season. Mm. Um, but you know, for some reason, he just took the pro car, and you you saw really you know the intelligence of Lauda and the skill, because I don't think Lauda was the most naturally gifted of racing drivers. I have to say he was obviously very, very good, but I don't find too many, if any, that were smarter than him. Very, very clever man. Um, Very much a guy I would have liked to have had a beer with, I think, Nicky Lauda. Mm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my favourite of the day was uh, Gilles Villeneuve, um, who I think was the fastest driver. Mm. Never seen anyone really that could do things in a racing car that he did, but, you know, everyone's got their own favourites and everyone's got their own ideas. And that's not a bad thing. It's a conversation piece for a start. Um, But, yeah, going back to um, things we miss, obviously proper circuits, you know, they've emasculated a few of them now. Some of it's in the name of safety, which I approve of, and some of it is just, oh, I don't know what they're playing at. They're just, they're just boring to watch. And combined with the type of cars we've got nowadays, overtaking is very difficult. Other thing is, um, nowadays spectators are herded. As I've indicated, you, couldn't, you can't really get into the paddock. You're kind of like cattle to a large degree. That wasn't the case in the old days. It is a corporate bore fest now, and uh, the drivers don't seem to have any personality whatsoever. They just, they've got interchangeable uh, caps that they wear, and that's about it, really. I'm extremely bored by it all. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's sad because I'm sh- some of the drivers, I'm sure, are very interesting people. I but... don't know. Wh- I don't know whether they are, David. I really, mm. I really struggle with that one because um, uh, an awful lot of the drivers that 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 we know and love from uh, our our era 
um, sort of had lives. <laughs> you know, they, I suppose they, they were older when they, they well, were they were older. Yeah. yeah, they were older when they, they went to mm. uh, became a Grand Prix driver. Yeah, some time ago, probably about 40, 50 years ago. A driver would be in his late 20s, you know, mm. 27, 29, yeah. something like that, before he got to Formula One. Mm. Um, there were exceptions to that, of course, but they'd had a life before it. They'd mm. had experiences out with racing and they carried that forward. And in general terms, they were harder to manage, let's be honest, but it worked pretty well. And there was a great deal more camaraderie between them in the old days um, than there seems to be nowadays. There was genuine affection between the drivers. Some didn't go on, but for the, by and large, you know, they were rivals, but they were friends. And you got a sense that, you know, they appreciated what they were doing was special and they were privileged to do it. It wasn't a sense of entitlement. It was a sense of, well, I'm very lucky to do this. I'm going to damn well make sure that I enjoy it. And because of that, that came out in the personality. There's one thing, though, I have to say that I don't miss about Formula One. I'm sure you know what that is. Don't know, David. Don't surprise me. <laughs> safety, the, the very yeah. poor approach to safety in the oh, old absolutely. days. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Nobody, yeah. yeah. Anybody who says they, they enjoy crashes are uh, no. a very strange um, uh, 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 creature. No, it was a, and also from our, from our era, yeah. I mean, there would be two or three drivers who would not make it to the end of a season. And that mm. was regarded as pretty much standard, you know, for the, uh, for the time, which when you think about it now is yeah. uh, very, very awful, really. I mean, it's mm. quite a shock if someone's, you know, injured. Yeah, um, these these are extremely rare, and uh, that's actually a good thing. Well, I did a, a thing a while ago, and looked at drivers who competed um, in the nineteen. I think it was nineteen sixty six season. Could be wrong. I mean, it's a while ago since I did this, and I sort of tracked what happened to them. And I think something like forty percent of them were killed in racing cars. Not all in Formula One. Not all in races. Some were in testing, but something like fifteen out of the forty of them were killed, um, and that's very high proportion. Mm. Yeah, you know, I'd like a sport that had the best parts of both the safety of the modern era and the character and slightly wild, slightly anarchic approach of yesteryear. Put the two together and you've got something special, I think. Let's just take a break here. You're listening to Bangers and Classics, presented by the two men most wanted by Interflora for crimes against podcasting. Join us for the last section of the podcast, and it's a battle today between two classic 1980s hot hatches. In one corner, we have the Renault 5 GT Turbo, and in the other, we have the much-proclaimed champion, the Peugeot 205 GTI. But which do we think is the better, James? Um, well, I don't know, really. It depends It depends what you like. I mean, it's uh, from very much uh, uh, an era of the hot hatch um, when I was driving lots of cars um, in, in a professional capacity. Actually, I used to do work for um renault dealer network i used to produce um all their communications to um renault dealers so actually i had quite a lot of access to renault's of the time which included renault 11 turbos and all sorts of other things and um yeah the 5 gt turbo I, to me it just always seemed as though it was trying a bit too hard um whether it's the body kit uh, whether it's a turbo which um you know it's just another thing to go wrong or go bang uh, or leave lots of smoke out, out, out of the back so so the so the Renault turbo I quite like the the idea of but uh, I think on a day-to-day basis and having driven uh, quite a few 205 G, GTIs which was quite a light a light French car but it, it really did feel um, as though it was alive and that I quite liked um, I would always go for the uh, for the pug um, over the Renault. Hmm. I, I don't know whether I'm being controversial or not. I don't you're being controversial, James, no. I had a couple of Renault turbos back in, oh, of that era, hmm. uh, two 11 turbos, one with uh, 
the original 105 horsepower engine, one with the slightly souped up and very much smoother and less laggy 115 horsepower engine. And I have to say the engines were terrific. They were a mm. lot stronger than people uh, gave them credit for. Um, 5 GT Turbo did suffer from one thing with its turbo installation, and that was fuel vaporization. Hot starting could be an issue. Oddly, the living really wasn't affected by it. I don't recall ever having serious problems with it in that sense, but I'm going to be controversial and say I prefer the 5. I think the 205 GTI is a great car. Um, you know, and we're, we're comparing my view to great cars here. Um, 205 GTI looks great. It goes well. To the 1.9 back in the day, well, it did have um, a tendency to uh, throw the unwary off backwards into hedges. Um, need a bit of lift off oversteer. Not so much in the 5 GT Turbo, though a friend of mine did spin his and around about once, uh, <laughs> which he took a while to live down. The thing about the Renault was it was just a hoot to drive. The turbo installation on it was very good. It was a very smooth installation. It wasn't very laggy. It was very smooth. It's uh, light to rev. And you had a, you know, it was beautiful in the sense that if you, you'd part throttle surge. If you've ever driven a turbo installation of that era, you know what I'm talking about. You can put part throttle and it just goes, shoots forward like a train. You're not giving it full revs or full throttle. It just feels really special. Uh, it almost feels effortless. Uh, I loved that about it. I think it handled very well. I think probably they get a bit more grip than the 205, though it did perhaps have the same level of feel as the 205. 205 was a car that you could think into a corner almost. The 5 needed a little bit more work, but I think if you really pushed it, it would probably hang on a little bit better. And back in the day, that's what people did. They did push these cars to extremes, which explains why Schumann's premiums shot up so much back in the day. So, I mean, it's a close run thing. They were two of the best of many great hot hatches. The buyer back in the 80s of a hot hatch was the winner because they had so many to choose from. And there were some great cars uh, right across the spectrum. The 205's reputation has uh, endured better than that of the 5. And I think that's because of the 5's turbo. Not because it was unreliable, because in my experience, it was anything but unreliable. Um, it's just because the Max Power guys got their hands on it and tuned it. And you know, they, they put far too much boost through it, and of course the engine couldn't take it, it went bang. 205, you couldn't tune to that extent, didn't have a turbo. And therefore, you know, it didn't get the, the, the name of being a car that went bang a lot. Whereas the 5, you know, it, in standard guys, had plenty of power. But, you know, for some people, that's never enough. They got a hold of them, cranked them up to 12, and, well, you know, the results were spilled all over the road. Yeah, I think you put that very eloquently there, David, um, even though you might have come to the wrong conclusion. No, <laughs> not really. I, I, like, I really like both cars. That's the thing. I appreciate both cars to a very great degree. And I suppose the answer would be have one of each. Absolutely. Um, I would probably go for, if it was 205, I'd go for a later model, 1.6 with 115 horsepower engine, and it would have to be one color only. That'd be Miami blue. Uh, if it was a, a 5 GT turbo, I'd probably go for the, the dark blue Raider specification, uh, same as a friend of mine had, and just avoid driving it like, <laughs> like he did round roundabouts. I know some people will disagree and say that the Peugeot is so much better, but I think you're wrong, guys. I think they're both terrific. Well, that's all for this week. James has got to dash off to get his oil changed, and I'm off to walk a dog. So until next time, thanks for listening, and I uh, hope you enjoyed the, the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much. I'm just going to collect uh, Monica Vitti and I'm off to the post office. 